0: Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. Thanks for listening, and be sure to click the subscribe button wherever you are hearing this podcast. And as always, it is free to do so. I was pleased and honored to be back full-time at the Illustration Academy this year. And after being only part-time for the past couple of summers, I really enjoyed being back. I truly love every minute, every day meeting and talking with so many brilliant students of all ages from all around the country all around the world at the illustration academy and to hear a little more of my 25 year history with the academy you may listen to episode 27 of this podcast titled spectrum fantasy art live slash planet comic-con during the illustration academy this year I was honored to interview a few of the visiting artists by setting up a makeshift sound studio in a dorm room on the campus of Rockhurst University in Kansas City, Missouri, which is where the Academy has been housed for several years now. I've received several requests to start doing a few pre-story stories during the introductions of my podcast. So, I will do a few of those and see if you still like the idea. I started doing that early on and then later I got distracted by actually just introducing the guests, but let me try a couple of pre-stories and see what you think. And in keeping with the 50th anniversary theme of the lunar landing, which took place on July 20, 1969, I will tell a quick pre-story story pertaining to space today. The first part of the space program was called Project Mercury, so named because it used two types of rockets that carried the Mercury capsule into space. The astronauts were inside of the Mercury capsule, and the second part of our space program was called Gemini because it carried two astronauts into space. It was, of course, named after the Gemini star constellation, meaning twins also in the astrology realm, if people like that sort of thing. And the third part of the program was called Apollo, and we are all probably more familiar with the Apollo program because that was indeed the program that ultimately took the astronauts to the moon and back. But back in the Mercury program, there were two types of rockets used. The first was actually an intercontinental ballistic missile, or ICBM, that was modified and they simply stuck the mercury capsule on top of it this booster the redstone rocket was not powerful enough fast enough or carried enough fuel to get the capsule into orbit but it did give the astronauts a feeling of a launch brief weightlessness and the astronauts got a feeling of what they could see and do during the violent vibrations and forces of liftoff and landing so they were learning to crawl before they could walk or run so this was basically like a cannonball they shot up into the air and tipped over and splashed down in the ocean it was about 15 minutes worth of ride for these guys the redstone rocket carried the mercury capsule and the astronauts up into the upper atmosphere about 15 minutes on the first two flights Of the Mercury program. The remainder of the Mercury flights with the single astronaut inside were carried by the Atlas rocket and this rocket is really what my story is about today. The Atlas rocket was also a modified ICBM but it didn't have a great safety record. Most of you have heard the name John Glenn before because he was the first man to be put up into orbit by the United States. He did ride the Atlas rocket into space as it was just powerful enough to get high enough and fast enough to achieve and maintain Earth orbit. The odd part of this rocket is it was designed like a can of soda, like a can of Coke or 7-Up. Meaning, if you hold a can of soda in your hand and try to squeeze it or crush it, you can't because it is pressurized and sealed but once the can is opened and not pressurized you can easily crush it and mangle it with your bare hands. That is how the Atlas rocket was designed as long as it was full of fuel and pressurized it was very strong but as the rocket used fuel during takeoff and flying into the sky the rocket became less pressurized and became weaker and weaker it was designed like this because the rocket engines they had back in the day just weren't very powerful and they needed to use whatever design tricks they could to get it off the ground and fly as the rocket used fuel and went higher the air was thinner and the aerodynamic stresses on the rocket were less and the rocket was just barely strong enough to do its job so when John Glenn and the other Mercury astronauts climbed on board the Mercury Atlas rockets. They were really climbing into a bomb that may or may not work correctly, but they knew the risk and did so with open minds to take the calculated risks involved to further the program. So think about the Atlas rocket next time you pop open a can of soda. Alright, so that was my pre-story today with a little space trivia sprinkled in there for you. My guest on this episode is my friend of 20-plus years and the most decorated illustrator in the Society of Illustrators, Gary Kelly. His awards and accomplishments are lengthy, and you can see some of his work on my website, brentwatkinson.com, and find a link to garykellystudio.com to see more of his images as well. Go to my website and click the podcast icon on the left to find Gary's images and link. And for the record, Kelly is spelled K-E-L-L-E-Y, just so you can find his work a little more easily. Speaking of the Society of Illustrators, his awards have included 27 gold and silver medals, as well as the Best in Show recognition in both the New York and Los Angeles illustrators exhibitions he was also elected to the Society of Illustrators New York Hall of Fame in 2007 his list of clients include the following Time Magazine Rolling Stone Atlantic Monthly the New Yorker and Playboy also the Los Angeles Times and the Boston Globe Hartford Stage Arena Stage the Santa Fe Opera and Geffen Playhouse plus numerous advertising and design firms oh and Gary was the guy that created the murals featuring famous authors for Barnes & Noble bookstores nationwide so if you ever been to a Barnes & Noble bookstores you have seen his work one passion of Gary's is illustrating picture books for people of all ages and we talk in depth during this interview about three of these books in particular One book is titled, And the Soldiers Sang, published by Creative Editions. Another is titled, The Navajo Code Talkers, also published by Creative Editions, and The Harlem Hellfighters. Gary talks about the incredible research he loves doing to back up the images and stories in his books, and the history he learns, and how he weaves it all together to convey a rich tapestry of information stories of humanity and stories of inhumanity to the reader. Some of the stories he chooses have a rather dark historical component, with many of his subjects rising above the mistreatment they encounter to take the higher road to what is right for all. He wants to know all he can about the subject instead of just drawing pictures of scenes or the famous outtakes from other works or the works of others. He wants to create his own accurate and interesting version of the story. That is never the easy way, but it's Gary's way. Listening to Gary talk about his process during this interview is a lot like listening to a mature and skilled jazz musician. The learned and experienced jazz player will not simply play the melody straightforward, but we'll play all around the note, above the note, below the note, to both sides of the note, never really playing it the simple way, but the melody is always there in our minds, and it is terribly interesting to listen to this way. That's the way Gary describes his process, in a fashion that is much more interesting than just to recite information that we already know. There is much subtlety in how, and what he is describing, so be sure to listen between the lines to fully ingest the magnitude of his words. With great pleasure, I present to you a great drawer, a great thinker, and a great interpreter, Gary Kelly. Let's get into it. Gary, I've got a question for you, and I will pose it in two different ways, and you can pick whichever way you would like to respond. And the question is either what is the favorite your favorite part of your creative process, or do you have a favorite part of your creative process?
1: Good question. Um, I don't really have a specific favorite part. Uh, sometimes different uh, different levels of the process uh, present the favorite part and that's I love variety that's that's really very important to me I know um, the last uh, couple of years I've been playing around with a new medium uh, rolling etching ink out on paper and then drawing over it after it dries uh, making sort of a, a pastel pencil drawing over etching ink and that has become one of my very favorite things right now. Um, I roll the ink out in the afternoon, come back in the studio the next morning when it's nice and set, and start drawing with a, a black uh, pastel pencil usually, or sometimes colors. But the bottom line there is that um, I can't wait to get back in the morning to, to manipulate that, that ink on the paper.
0: You mentioned the word Variety. So, what other types of variety are you talking about?
1: Subject matter, medium, um, period of periods of art, uh, inspiration. Uh, I, I just, uh, I'm I'm not all over the map, really. I, I don't think, but uh, I I tell this story all the time to students or whoever, um, running running across uh, one of my. Art directors I'd worked with a long time um, at the Society of Illustrators. had an opening once. Uh, Judy Garland from the uh, Atlantic Monthly magazine, now The Atlantic. And I hadn't heard from her for a while. And I said, Judy, what's what's up? I love working for you. I haven't heard from you. Uh, And uh, she was always very nice to work with. But her answer was, well, we just don't know what to expect from you. And... My response was, I'm going to take that as a compliment, because otherwise I would be bored. Otherwise, if I did the same thing all the time at this point in my career, I'd probably want to get out, and I don't.
0: I think that's a, a really good statement by her and a really good answer by you. And I think you and I have a common friend by the name of Mark English that he was accused of that the last yeah. 15 years of his career. People yeah. had no idea what he was going to do.
1: Right, and, and watching Mark uh, work now like we just did, um, he was doing things that I've never seen him do over the years and, and uh, <laughs> starting his process, starting, starting to work within the rectangle or the flat piece of, uh, of uh, surface um, with a really interesting collection of mediums is I totally understand that I don't want to, I don't want to work like Mark, but I totally admire and respect everything he does, and that's 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 why he's still working. That's why he doesn't want to retire and move to Florida or something. You know, I mean it. It's I'm never going to want to do that. Just uh, my family and my work and and uh, finding new sources of inspiration. That's what my life is about.
0: So it sounds like you're really deep into the process of entertaining yourself (laughs) while you're working
1: well (laughs) do we want to talk about that (laughs) well you're you're right
0: you would be bored if you did this i can't see you doing the same thing same thing same thing
1: absolutely absolutely and i tell students that all the time and uh i I, it'd be really tough for me to just be a full-time instructor too i mean i i need projects and deadlines and and if you're an instructor, sometimes you're in a, you get in a situation where, and there's nothing wrong with that, but where you have to preach the same thing this semester, next semester, summer school, next year, go back and do it again. And if it's a certain topic, a historic topic, for example, you've got to talk about the same thing all the time, unless you could bring a little bit of a contemporary spin on it. But I, no, I'm I'm always looking for new sources of inspiration.
0: Would you say you've always had an innate curiosity about everything anything
1: not everything no definitely not um i'm definitely more into history um uh, i um the history whether it's art history certain certain eras of art history not not art history totally i mean I just came back from europe recently and uh i was much more Drawn into the Van Gogh Museum than the Rembrandt Museum, but I totally respect both of them.
0: And if it were ten years earlier, it could have been the opposite, maybe. Would,
1: well, probably never, never Rembrandt, never the really classical traditional stuff. But, um, but it, it is the the most interesting thing in this in this case about um, um doing my homework before we went to that museum, and listening to docents and all that. Um, it was intriguing for me to learn, or to find, because I'd never studied it that much, that he was sort of on the, the leading edge of something like Impressionism, for example, because the way he painted was not as tight and is not as, as um, realistic in some era, parts of his compositions as a lot of the painters of his time. And so other painters evolved from that. And you could evolve far enough to be Van Gogh, probably. But um, those that those parts of history really, really intrigue me. And I'm not a big fan of. Well, I'm I have am, I am total respect for Van Gogh, but I I've never wanted to work like him. But I certainly am intrigued by trying to look at his work, and then carry it forward to see how it inspired the next generation, and then the generation after that, and. Uh, it's it's always evolving for me.
0: Well, I'll back up half a paragraph, and you mentioned Rembrandt, and you were saying he was maybe on the leading edge of what perhaps led to Impressionism. Do you think that was a conscious effort by him, or did it have something to do with his failing eyesight when in his that's later years? That's a good years? point.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. Um, probably a little bit of both. Um,
0: I I think he was probably a pretty smart guy.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he was, and and back then, um, well, as like illustrators, uh, most all of his work was a commission. You know, he was doing portraits of wealthy people and things like that. Illustrators That's how you made, made money back then.
0: Wait, I thought you were talking about a fine artist, and then you said illustrator. Yeah, how can you use those in the same sentence?
1: Oh, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, okay. we're we're hacks. We're all hacks.
0: <laughs> okay, now Gary and I are having a little inside joke that illustrators have had for, uh, as long as there's been illustrators. And of course there's that fictitious line between fine artists and illustration that illustrators have never really recognized or cared about. But there is this political thing out in the world that, uh, and then I think there was a, a quote by Brad Holland that said, anybody can be an artist except an illustrator. So, uh, I don't
1: remember that quote but I understand it um, I think that is changing a little bit now um, with um, um, I don't want to say with graphic novels and stuff like that I mean that that's that's an ex- one extreme of illustration I would say which I totally admire and respect and enjoy um, and the other side which is say totally abstract work but I, I, I think when it, it comes back around, Brent. Um, it's really probably the bottom line for me, and I think a lot of a lot of my colleagues or whoever um, is uh, narrative is telling a story. Now, now watching Mark paint, um, there's a tiny bit of a story, but uh, he's at a point in his painting career, his illustration, his making pictures career, um, where he is almost totally, I'm assuming this is the right thing to say. He's almost totally about shapes, colors, composition. He's not about telling stories anymore.
0: I agree with that. And I let me throw this word out to you because you are a fan and a, uh, observer of Mark's work very critically and, and, uh, unapologetically admiringly. Uh, I think he deals with a lot of optics. He's doing these almost optical illusions of collage and camouflage,
1: right? Right, and and I can totally understand, like in his demos that we've just seen. Um, uh, I, I I totally understand the fact that he's he's just about um, composition right now, about um, color, about. Trying to find a new way to want to walk into the studio. I talked to him about that yesterday for a long time, because um, that's exactly the way I feel. I mean, I'm not doing the kind of thing he does, but at the same time, um, uh, if if I was a total realist or something in the way I make pictures, uh, I don't know if I'd be making more money, less money, no money, whatever. But that doesn't matter. I'd be just I'd be bored as hell no no i no, not i'm not bad mouthing realism at all but that that's just my point of, the way i look at the flats the, the surface of the composition
0: when you are approached to do a new project what makes you say yes or no
1: <laughs> that's a great that's a really tough question. <laughs> that's an unfair question <laughs> no no I, it'll be fun to sort of <laughs> chew on uh um well, of course, deadline is always—that's <laughs> a big thing. Um,
0: Do you like tight deadlines, or you? It
1: depends if it's a stressful project. You know, it can make it if it, if the project gets too stressful, that's not good for it at all. Um, um, but but at the same time, I don't want to just wander, in, you know, with the with the project either. But um, probably, uh, I, you know, I'll get a little nervous if somebody will come to me and say. Uh, we want you to do our project again this year, but maybe not as edgy as it was last year. Make it a little more conservative looking or something. And and okay. In terms
0: of content or the actual rendering of the finished
1: piece, um, could be both a combination of both in the same project. Really, uh, it, you know some some well, clients in this day and age, clients don't call me to do the kinds of things I don't want to do very often. I mean, I that's, and I don't have the client list I used to. I mean, because, you know, printed pages are, are floating out the window. You know, we don't have many, as many of those anymore and they don't have the respect they used to have, which is frustrating for me because I like to turn a page and look at a, some ink printed on a page on it. But, um, but that's the way it is. And, uh, and I don't. I don't think I'll follow some of these new things in, to where they are. I want to do what I want to do, what I've been doing. Well, not well. I don't want to do everything I've been doing. But uh, but um, I, you know, it it always it always comes back to um, for me. Probably it always comes back to a certain um, era in art history, uh, s- certain painters. Printmakers, whoever, not illustrators so much anymore, um, but um, painters and printmakers, fine artists, uh, but but figurative fine artists, that makes me uh, makes me keep going, makes me want to keep working. Um, I know Mark. You know Mark is, he's got a lot of work now that's totally abstract, and it's just about. It, it, you look at it and you just think, well, that he's a terrific composer. I mean, he's a terrific colorist. He's got a great eye. Um, but um, I'm not there yet. You know, I I don't know. If, I said yet because maybe I'll go there someday. But right now, I don't see that on the horizon at all for me. I I'll, I've I've gone the other direction for some weird. I don't know what the reason is, but um um uh. This week at the at the academy, I know I was uh, um, looking forward to spending part of the time here with uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, and and uh, I like the way he does graphic novels the way he tells visual stories, and there are a lot of graphic novelists that I really uh, um, um, admire now, and. 10 15 years ago <clears throat> i knew i knew about that that world a little bit but i was not looking at it much and i i had no desire to wander off into it now now i kind of do
0: what changed your mind <laughs> was <laughs> it visual know, or was i don't i was... don't know Brent. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, i Brent. need to know now um, okay okay that's a good question
1: <laughs> some of the picture books i do I've been doing. Um, I've done maybe thirty, thirty-five. Um, I say picture books because they're not truly ch- children's books. A lot of them. They're some kind of, of
0: the subject matter is a little historically it's, it's historic, heavy, a,
1: more adult. Not not. Some of them are a little bit grim. They're not gross. They're not nasty. I've. Well,
0: you're telling a truthful story yes, about history, historical history, things. Yes. yes.
1: Yeah, but. Um, that may have been the spark. You know, uh, I, I I, looked at... Uh, I had comics, of course, growing up. And I had my favorite comic book uh, uh, stories and titles. I didn't really pay a lot of attention to who the, the artists were. Um, but I'll always remember uh, when I was a kid, Prince Valiant and Hal Foster drawing that. I mean, I I love that. I've always loved that stuff. I still do. Uh, but... Um, but it, as I evolved in the, we'll say, children's book world over the last probably 25 years, um, my style has evolved as well. And stories have come up in the last, for me to tell in these books, on these assignments, um, stories have come up um, that I thought would be better told with a, a, a drawing, a colored drawing, a hard edge drawing, um, than like a, a soft, uh, you know, not impressionistic, but a soft rendering of, uh, you know, a character or a landscape or something like that.
0: So you're trying to marry the the technique with the content. Absolutely. Because if, if you're doing a fuzzy kitty cat, then you can... Do the yeah. soft pastel and soft yeah. edges. But if you're talking about World War One, the Germans and the English calling a, mm. a a ceasefire on Christmas Eve, which you yeah. have done that book, then that calls for a little bit different technical approach to the piece.
1: That sparks my um technique imagination, I guess I could call it. Uh and and again, I'm really into history. Um, and, and realizing I'm doing a story that took place in, say, 1914, 1915, um, I, and I've become very interested in that period. Um, if I'm doing a, a story that takes place in Europe, in I think the, uh, the Christmas truce was maybe 1940. It, wasn't a, it was not an American story. It was a British and German story, but maybe 1914, 1915. Um, 16. Uh, but if I'm doing a story that takes place in Europe in that era, I know it's a war story, but I'm looking at an artist that I've always admired as a draftsman, and that's Egon Schiele. Okay? I love the way he drew, he did his line work, and of course, he was a European, he was, he was an Austrian, and he was from the same period. So that's what inspired me to push push my line work into that into that particular book, and and make it feel like maybe um, not not be at all ashamed that I was inspired by Sheila, and then I had so much fun doing that book. I promoted a couple more ideas: the Harlem Hellfighters, the Navajo Code Talkers, and some of those. And um,
0: okay, wait, those let's. Define those a little bit. The Harlem Hellfighters. Tell us a paragraph about who those people were.
1: Well, once once I did the Soldier sang, which was the the Christmas story, and uh, that's a classic story. I pitched it to my publisher, Creative Editions, who's terrific to work with, and they said, "Sure, we'll do it." Um, and
0: and basically, for those that may not know what it is, literally the Germans and the yes. British soldiers called a truce on on Christmas Eve, they went to each other's trenches and they sang and drank and had songs and good mm-hmm. community soccer. fellowship. Yeah. They yeah. played soccer, I, yeah, I forgot about that part. And then that night, it was over, and they were shooting and killing each other the next day.
1: That's right. That It's a classic um, story from World War One before America was in the war. I thought, well, I'd love to make pictures to tell this story, but I was at a point where I didn't want to. I, I didn't want to do it just as one picture on each page. I wanted to take it a little bit into not a, not a pure graphic novel by any stretch at all, but I wanted to be able to put more than one picture in this in the story sequence on a page or a spread, and so that sort of got me uh, into that. Um, of course, you're doing a lot more pictures for your your assignment for your project, and you're spending more time on it than you would with a 32-page book and one picture on each page out of say 20 pages. But
0: so would you call those books a hybrid between a true picture book and a graphic novel? I'm making that up. I mean, yeah. I've, but I've seen them, and the way you're describing them, maybe the listeners can visualize what they are by saying eh, it's not quite a graphic novel, mm-hmm. and it's not a picture yeah. book. It's
1: to me, they are. Both? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and I'm so fortunate to have a, a really um, great history, friendly history, creative history with uh, with um, the publisher Creative Editions um, going way back to the nineteen late 1980s probably. And uh, this was a book that I pitched to them. They they said, yeah, we'll do it. And then, uh, I, I connected with my favorite, uh, writer that, that I work with a lot, especially for the, for creative editions of J. Patrick Lewis. He's a pretty well-known, uh, children's poet and, uh, and the rest is history, (laughs) I guess, as we (laughs) can say, but, uh,
0: so tell us a little bit about the, the hell fighters, because I want you to to define a little bit about that, and then the Navajo uh, Wind, Code Talkers, ta- code yeah, talkers. Yeah. okay.
1: Well, the hell, all three of those books, uh, Christmas Truths, Hellfighters, Code Talkers, um, were my idea, I mean, th- their history, I didn't make up the stories, but I pitched them to uh, Creative Editions, and thank goodness they, they bought into it. Uh, they do beautiful books. I mean, very terrific design work by Rita Marshall, their designer, uh, who, by the way, is the wife of Etienne Dela a very well-known American-European illustrator. Um, and she's so great to work with. Uh, and Pat Lewis is a terrific writer. So anyway, um, bring those three things together, those three or four things together, publisher, writer, art director, designer, and then the, the pictures, uh, and it's really fortunate to work that way. That history really spoke to me enough that I wanted to do another one, uh, maybe a year or two later. So
0: where did the inspiration for the Harlem Hellfighters come from, and what is a Harlem
1: Hellfighter? I suppose I could say it, the inspiration for the next, uh, the next book for Creative Editions, after the soldiers sang, would be another World War One history story told at, told in in the words of Pat Lewis, of course, um, to a wide range of uh, readers from probably ten years old to a hundred years old, and that's always fun. But I had I was at a Christmas party with um, a group of people, and uh, one of them was a music professor at the university where I live. And just kind of casual conversations about music and art, and things like that. And uh, she mentioned, she, or she asked me if I, I knew about the Harlem Hellfighters because she had seen some information or something about them. Uh, they were a famous uh, jazz band, uh, uh, the, a famous jazz uh, in, uh, band um, conductor from New York City. That took his uh, musicians uh, as as soldiers in World War One to Europe, and had a huge impact on on uh, uh, World War One and uh, crossing Germany and France to Germany. They had a lot of musicians and other people that um, had a, made an impact as fighters and players, and so. Uh, um, James Reese Europe was the uh, the the leader and um, and it was a great story to tell and 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 I probably pushed that one a little farther visually than uh, the soldiers sang into the graphic format more more pictures some of them a little bit smaller all the text is not written like a comic book it's it's set you know and and arranged by the designer Rita but I figured out the way to, to, to tell the story visually, where it starts, where it goes, and where it finishes. And with a story like that, there is so much, to, so many options. There's so much to work with. And I don't remember if that's a 32-page book or a 40-page book, but there <laughs> there's a lot to work with in, in that limited space. So that is really, really a fun... And doing all the homework on the uniforms, the, the landscape, all of that stuff. I mean, that is a, that's a joy for me.
0: So how did the images change visually from a soldier saying, or did they, I mean, it's a really dirty, gritty, mm-hmm. terrible war story. So what did that make you think you needed to do visually?
1: They didn't change that much really, Brent. They, um, they got maybe a little more gnarly. Uh, um, um, the drawing, the the figure, the line work on the figures and the the objects might have been a little more, a little coarser, just because I had made, not because I was trying to make it look different than the soldiers' saying, but that I had been doing that kind of style for a couple, three more years, and it was evolving slightly, and so and again, I've got to go back and give Egon Sheila the credit for that because the late Egon Sheila um, <clears throat> because he was a Central European artist that lived to be I don't know I don't remember for sure all of maybe 28 years old or something and uh, and uh, during the same period in history and he was he was a uh, he was on the front edge of, um, of of making paintings back then paintings and drawings and, and so and there. They seem to be the his style, and what I what I get out of his style does not want to copy him directly, but but definitely influenced by him. His style seemed such a good fit for these war stories because it some of his works are very dark and and very gnarly and, and you know uh, organic.
0: Is the book the same palette from start to finish or can you interject, oh, here's a little bit of a rosier, brighter image psychologically or is the whole thing just kind of one tone, one emotion?
1: No, it goes up and down a little bit. I, I Again, um, I might want to um, dance around the same style for the entire book. I always do. Um, <clears throat> it's not always the same style for every book. But when I get into the book, it's got to be the same style throughout, pretty much throughout the book. Yeah, that's a that's a good question because there are some spreads in the book that are are very deep and dark, and then there are some others. <coughs> excuse me that um, that I, I chose to be inspired by um, European painters like Delacroix. Uh, I I have a spread in the book that um, Lady Liberty, you know, the par- the Parisian painting he did of the the topless woman raging through a battle with the French flag, uh, fluttering over her.
0: So you interpreted some of those images into your book yep. with obvious um, yeah. uh, footnotes or or a bibliography. Yeah,
1: the back page. We did it on the back page, but um, I wanted to remind the reader. That all this, all this destruction and this killing was happening in in this this you know heartland or the bed of all this wonderful classic art, and so that's why she shows up in the book as a as a as a spread actually not just a spot, only she has the Harlem Hellfighters fighting around her, not the French Revolutionists. Uh, there's another one of a couple, a uh, lively couple dancing in. Outside of a little uh, cottage or in a, a little party at a, at a tavern, which is a copy, and and I give full credit to a Renoir painting. That's toward the end of the book when when we finally got the Germans under control and we and won the war. The French were celebrating, so I thought this it's a perfect image from that some from a time similar to that period, not that exact year or anything by by an impressionist which I don't work like but when I created the composition anybody that looks at art books very seriously is going to recognize that composition and of course then you give it credit at the end of the book I'm not I, I'm not a plagiarist but I hope but um, well
0: you're using those images as a as a mm-hmm. metaphor and you're pulling from history right and the ironic part is you're pulling from history, showing that history does repeat itself, unfortunately. So I think yeah. that was a good device for you to think about. Exactly,
1: yeah. Um, I did do one page in the Hellfighters that, that is 12 little square images as a grid of a, a nighttime battle where two of the Hellfighters were on the front lines trying to protect the, the, the U.S. soldiers in camp. And they're overrun by a a, a German uh, platoon. You know, it's two guys against I don't know thirty or something, and they actually put them down. They they held them off, and it's a very heart rending story because.
0: So the Hellfighters were uh, they successful. Were fighters. Yeah, yeah, they were successful in repelling. Yeah. Vast numbers.
1: Yes, they were. Those two guys were there. Um there's some other. Um, Hellfighters that went on to become famous musicians when they got back. Uh, There's one that became a a famous painter, actually. Um, And um, I insert pages. There's one full page in the book of, it it just for the variety, like maybe, when I look at movies that I really love, I'm I'm looking for that same kind of variety, film variety. But um, there's one full page of basically an African-American mother sitting in her, tenement in New York, uh, reading a letter from her son. It's not necessarily a sad letter, but I just wanted to make that connection in the middle of the book back to where these guys came from and their family. I mean, you want to remind their reader, this is, this is not just a G.I. Joe action movie or, or action comic. It's, it's a heart, heart-rending story to a certain degree. And then toward the end of the book, um, the heart, when the Hellfighters came back, of course, they marched down Fifth Ave, up Fifth Avenue in New York, and they were, they were cheered and everybody loved them. Of course, then, you know, they barely escaped slavery. <laughs> but uh,
0: I was uh, going to say, did you make any reference to the fact that, of course, the United States Armed Forces were still segregated at the time? But did you refer back to the race relationship that, black people, African-American people had in the United States at the time.
1: Definitely. Yeah. How did you do that? Um, well, uh, first of all, uh, as you mentioned, um, uh, the respect that they, that the, that the, the black soldiers got was not what it should have been. And they would not let them fight. The, the U S would not let them go, go to battle. And that's why they went, because that's what they wanted to do. They had to, They had to just do construction work and stuff like that for the other troops. And so finally, um, some of the commanders talked the senior commanders into letting them join the French. So they, uh, ironically, the the Harlem Hellfighters, a lot of them did some serious fighting and and, um, made a big impact wearing French Army uniforms, not American uniforms. When they were working and building railroads and driving garbage trucks and stuff like that for the military. The U.S., they were wearing U.S. uniforms. But they they didn't want to be there to do that. They wanted to fight. The only way they could do that is as French soldiers, and they were heroes for, to the French. They, they, one of them won the Croix de Guerre, um, which uh, crossed, you know, the, the, it's like the Medal of Honor. One of the fighters, the, the American fighters, won that. And um, it's it's sort of a sad story, but about heroes. And it gets even sadder at the end because James Europe, the guy that led them over there, the, the iconic <clears throat> conductor, got in an argument with one of his musicians after he after the war in, in America and was knifed, was killed by him. He survived the war, but he was murdered in America later. Um, another <clears throat> an image <clears throat> at the end of the book, um, toward the end of the book, they had some kind of an event. In New York City for the Hellfighters, uh, I don't know. If, maybe it wasn't New York. Maybe it was Boston. I don't remember. But in front of that iconic statue of uh, the military um, officer uh, Robert, I think it was Robert Shaw. He was played by Matthew Broderick in the movie Glory. And, Great movie. Uh, that well, that's what I was. That's what I'm getting to. <laughs> that <laughs> that movie was one of the best movies I've. seen. I love that film and so i wanted to make sure that i got that reference into the toward the end of the book and it does definitely tie into the Hellfighters in in like 50 probably 50 55 years later um, in american history and and they did receive some awards uh, at around that statue They had an event at the base of that statue of 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 the uh, lieutenant shaw or Kirk, i think it was a lieutenant who who was obviously killed at the in, in South Carolina, you know, when they finally got to fight uh, in, in glory, I should say. But that connection also had maybe just a touch to do with it. I wanted to bring it in.
0: So fast forward in United States history from World War I. Then you did a book based in World War II, which were the Navajo Code Talkers. So give us a little bit of background about who they were and what they were doing. Why were they chosen to do what they did?
1: Well, it's a similar story to the Hellfighters, um, I would say. World War II, though. And um, I don't know why, honestly, but ever since I was a little kid, grade school kid, and my uncle taught me to draw. He had gone to art school. And uh, he was teaching me, trying to teach me to draw for some reason. And he also had a lot of of his favorite artists, and this was in the 1950s probably, um, early 60s, some of it. But um, a lot of his favorite painters were Western artists like Charlie Russell and Frederick Remington. And that kind of sucked me into that history. And then when I got into that history, I didn't care so much about cowboys. I cared more about Indians. You know that was my my side of it, and then after the Hellfighters, of course, uh, uh, and the soldiers' sang books. I thought, well, there's another great story that involves people of color, fighting for us in America, and that's the Code Talkers. More people know that story, of course, than they knew the Hellfighters story, but um, and that and that's that's a little bit of an interesting side aside for me because. If it's a really um, common—I don't want to say common story, but I mean a, a story that is well known—I probably less. I'm less likely to want to tell it with my pictures, you know, because I, I want to. I want to tell a story that will give some people some information they didn't know. Uh, but I thought this story is important, and I, so I wanted to do it. And in that case. I wanted to do it with my with a lot of research and bring out some backstories that maybe people didn't take time to read. I mean, I think now we know most of them anyway. But um, and World War II to me, you know, when I was a little kid, I had Revell plastic models of uh, World War II uh, Sherman tanks and 155 millimeter long guns and stuff, soldiers. But I wanted more of the little. Little Ravel soldiers more than I did the equipment, but anyway, that's that's I wander off there. But um, but World War Two never really intrigued me as a as a visual inspiration as much as World War One, I, I guess. Uh, but I thought I had to do the hell the the well the Hellfighters and then the Code Talkers. So again, Pat Lewis writing it, um, Rita Marshall designing it, and starting the story. But, but fortunately, I got to sort of lay the story out and say, Here's where we want to start, then I want to do this, and I want to finish over here. Um, and with the code talkers, I thought it was important to tell the history of the of some of the the like late mid late nineteenth century history of the Navajo tribe, not just jump into the Wo- World War II at the beginning of the book. so probably the first I don't know third of the book maybe uh thirty uh, percent of the book uh, is about um, how they were abused by the government in Arizona and New Mexico and and run out of their um, run out of the land that they had lived in forever and sent somewhere else the long walk they called it And also I thought it was ironic that in, in doing my homework I found it very ironic that this this American hero Kit Carson was a big part of that abuse of the Navajos. I would have always thought maybe he would be on their side, but no, he wasn't. He was he pushed them. I mean, he he burned their villages. He pushed them on the onto the trail to walk from, you know, north central Arizona all the way down to to um, New Mexico, uh, south and southern uh, uh, central New Mexico. And put them on a reservation there because they, they they we wanted to take their their land in in North Central Arizona a Monument Valley was part of it Shiprock uh, of kind of a monument was part of it and I thought well that that's got to work itself into the book because they're going to take a ship at the and far deeper into the story the Navajos are going to take a ship to the Pacific, across the Pacific to fight for America and Shiprock was a was a r- religious rock for them in, in, uh, northern Arizona or near, near New Mexico. And, um, it might've been in New Mexico. I'm not, I, I'm, it's near the border, but, um, those kinds of little backstories are really, they're not always fun stories cause there's, they're kind of dark, a lot of them, but I want to work them in, into the, into the, into the theme of the entire book because i want to remind the reader not just not just that for example not just that the navajos were did did a lot for our our military in world war 2 a lot but the uh, the fact that that that's ironic because of the way our military treated them like in uh probably 70 years earlier and and,
0: and the whole basis of what the military was doing with these Navajo native people is the fact that there were maybe 30 or 40 people on earth that could speak that language. So the military said, wow, not only do we have our secret codes, but let's have these people talk to each other and interpret Mm -hmm. orders and things from the military. They'll have no idea what these two people are talking about you, you know one navajo yeah. talker on one end another one on the other and from what i understand of course this language had no words for tanks or right. platoon and they were making up words so not only not only did nobody on earth practically literally understand this language they were making up false words that only they knew right and right. that was why they helped win the war because it was an unbreakable code
1: absolutely and uh part of the fun for the uh, it's it, it's a dark story too in some parts but um but one of the interesting elements that kind of grabbed my attention it, it, when I was creating the pace of the book and doing the sketches and all that would was the fact that it might be really fun to do um, a spread, a visual spread that is a little quiz for the reader to see if they can match up the Navajo word for, you know, for, um, you know, whatever is on, on the other page the, of whether it's a... a Did bird. you do that? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And the book has a little, the book has a little, um, uh, quiz uh, spread, um, in the middle of it that, uh. Or toward the end of it, actually, and and it's all called. How did you, you know? do on the
0: quiz? Hmm? How did you do on the quiz? Well, I cheated.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I looked them all up. <laughs> so anyway, that but that that's a I guess getting back to the the process and everything. Um, that's what makes those those kind of stories more enjoyable for me to tell. To be able to do it with some variety. These these three war books, you know. Um, the first one was not some quite so much that the uh, the soldiers sang, but when you get into the backstory f- for us Americans of the Harlem Hellfighters and the Navajo Code Talkers, I mean it it it's a sad those are sad backstories because of what what we did to those people, and what they did for us, and um, and I wanted to make sure, and and Pat's a great writer for this too, Patrick, um, Lewis. Um, I wanted to make sure that I'm not just talking about these these guys being heroes. I want, I'm talking about where their ancestors came from, um, and and how they were abused by, especially the military back in those days, and 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 the government. The government, I guess, would be a better term for that. Yeah.
0: Well, not only are these tremendously interesting historical stories, and I've really enjoyed listening to you describe what each book was about but as an artist I'm sitting here listening to you really take in all the information of the text and then you as an illustrator as an artist you are trying to figure out this new interesting version that you can use and you can help mold to tell the story so you're not just getting a bunch of manuscripts and little doodles from the publisher they're saying Gary what is your point of view visually to historically say what needs to be said and what is your palette what is your technique and um, uh, it's just it's fascinating because I can just I can feel the gears moving even now you've already completed the projects but I think you're still thinking back to a lot of the things that you were considering
1: that's a good reminder, Brent. Um, for example, uh, I have done a number of not graphic type novels, not picture books, but, but quite a few pictures in one book, uh, in a fat novel for a publisher in Barcelona. And they're always, they're classics, um, classic European stories, and they're fun to do. But, uh, you know, you find a part in, in, um, you know, in the story, uh, and, and say, I'm going to do 10 pictures for a 250 page book or something. And that's, I I enjoy that process too, because I, I I love doing the homework. If I'm going to do a, you know, a little French village or something, I'll go to my photos that I've taken over there. I'll go to my bookshelf or whatever. Um, as a lot of people know, I, I probably won't Google it unless I absolutely have to, because I want to find other stuff. Uh, but, um, but so those, those are enjoyable projects too. But what you just brought up is, is really kind of a, a good reminder for me that, um, working with a publisher like creative for me, creative editions that gives me that flexibility and being able to work with a writer and a designer that, Will make the most of it for sure. Absolutely, uh, has been really, really fortunate. Uh, I'm very lucky to be able to do that. And uh, um, I'm working on a book right now for them about, again, about World War II. But Pat Lewis didn't write it. They gave me, they sent me the manuscript from a different writer. Uh, there's no problem there with Pat or me or Creative, but um, but it'll be designed by Rita. I've got the sketches. I think they're approved now. But it's about a, an American woman that was a spy in World War II, and sort of a lot of a lot of uh, visuals I'm, I'm, I've I've got done the sketches for are more of the culture in Europe when the war was breaking out. It's not about battle scenes and stuff like that, but um, it's been really fun. And then it was just kind of lucky that we had a European trip planned uh, in some of the same regions. Uh, got back a couple weeks ago from it, but um, so that sort of um, supported some of the sketches I've already done. Uh, but I've been there enough times that that I want to again when I when I'm say say I'm doing um, the southern part of France, southeastern France, where this spy was trying to work her way to Spain without being caught by the Nazis. You know, with with a bunch of with three or four other men that were trying to escape to from uh, Paris I kind of know that part of your of, of France but I and I don't want to just go go google or buy a tour guide that has pictures that everybody has seen of that region I want to find my own scenes that's really important to me as the picture maker I, I don't want people to look at my illustrations except unless that unless that's my point but usually it isn't I don't want them to look at my images and say, oh yeah, I've seen that photo. That's a nice picture he made of it. No, I don't want to do that. So I'm looking for more obscure images that I can interpret than than iconic images. Sometimes the iconic Im- image is important. I mean, it's like in these in these war stories, you know, once you know, you're gonna to wanna to, you know, there's a classic portrait photo portrait of Kit Carson, which I used to inspire my uh, uh, code talker's portrait of him, but I made him look a little grimmer, a little more nasty than he does in the portrait, in the photo. Uh, but I can interpret it that way, which which sort of reminds me too, I guess a little bit. Um, uh, and th- this is a really <laughs> a really basic aspect of how I develop these things. I never trace them or enlarge them. You know, I never blow them up photographically or, you know, of course, in my era and still on an on a autograph or something and then trace the photo, ever. It's always very important for me. If I have a photo reference, I do often, very often, I'm going to take it, I'm going to pin it to my drawing board and look at it and then draw it and try and push myself to distort it a little bit to move the emphasis from here to there, whatever a little bit. I don't want my my goal is not to make my illustration look exactly like the photo. I don't mind somebody looking at Delacroix's you know Liberty Leading the People, classic painting like in the Hellfighters. I want it to look like that painting, but I didn't I didn't project that and trace it. I drew it the way I wanted to draw it, and not that that's <laughs> not all about me. Believe it, believe me, um, but. No, I, I
0: think the magic word here is interpretation. Absolutely. Because you are giving us, the reader, the viewer, Gary Kelly's interpretation, and that's what you're being paid for.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, they it,
0: they have you do these jobs for a certain reason, and that's why all illustrators, I hope, mm-hmm. get jobs. It's because how does this person see the world, and what is their point of view? Let's Let's pay that person to do this, and that's going to enhance what we have that's what you were doing with kit carson
1: yeah and um that would sort of brings up in my in in my mind here um a book i did two a couple years ago for creative editions as well called next year and it was really well written it wasn't uh, they sent me the manuscript it wasn't pat lewis um rita designed it but uh again as the as the art director designer she gives me a lot of a lot of leeway and next year was a story about and and it was really intriguing when I it's not a period I've always been totally fascinated with but it was about the great depression and the, the dust bowl basically and a family living in the dust bowl era out out in out down in Oklahoma or Kansas and so obviously when you get into a project like that, it, it's really well written. I really—that's why I took this. I took it on. I said this is gonna. I didn't haven't. I hadn't been wanting to do a book about the Dust Bowl forever. Ever, I've never wanted to do a book about the <laughs> Dust Bowl, but when I got that manuscript and I knew it was Creative Editions and and it was going to be a picture book and it was a personal little story, not not pure history, just a personal story. I thought this. I'm going to make myself have a lot of fun with this. And I did. Um, it was. It's not panels. It's not like the 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 World War One, World War Two books. It's just a picture on a page. Turn the page. Maybe one or two pictures. A spot in a picture. Um, but the bottom line there is that when you think about that era in American history, there are so many photographs out there from the Great Depression and the Dust Bowl era. So many incredible photographers that recorded that that part of our history and of course that's very tempting because a lot of them are beautiful shots very tempting to think well i'll just copy this one then and put it in color and maybe distort it a little bit and i tried to avoid that as much as i could there are a couple that that people will recognize maybe but generally speaking um again a book like that's probably Thirty-two pages and maybe eighteen illustrations. I'm I'm just get, I'm trying to remember, but uh, um, but it's called next year and and I wanted to make it feel like a certain point of view of that and and I again I use the same style as I used in the in the World War Two books, the World War One books. Um, change the palette a little bit. Let the palette go a little gray and dark part of it brighten up you know when when the you know the the dust bowl finally blew away and uh and all of that but and points of view that's very important your point of view yeah, but but when point, you
0: ha- point of view meaning not only psychologically your point of view but yep. also basically where the camera is like if right. you were a director how am I going to stage this mm-hmm. scene the so composition. point of views yeah couple of different things there
1: the composition and uh i considered doing it in almost a real limited palette almost black and white like all those photos from then then but then i thought well okay i'll start the book in with, with a fair amount of color because the the big the big wall of dust has not hit oklahoma and, and kansas yet and then I'll i'll devolve it into a more limited palette and a more grim story in the middle. And then at the end of the story, the Dust Bowl has basically gone away, and, uh, or is on the way out, I think, in the way it's written. And, and the, um, the family decides they're out of here. We're moving to California. But the boy doesn't want to, their son, which the book is about. It's about a young boy. doesn't want to go, so he stays and keeps the farm. And that's the end of the book. But that's the you know one of the last pictures is there. It looks like a um, little bit like grapes of wrath with a with an old car loaded down with um, suitcases and and all kinds of stuff with them going out leaving the farm where where the where the dust uh, storms all hit and the boy waving goodbye and. Um,
0: so you're pacing the palette based on the right. story and the point of view and the realities of whether things were. A little mm-hmm. rosy, and then they got terrible, then they got a little better.
1: Yep, yep. And the palette, the palette's not only influenced or inspired by historic photography, let's say, but by other painters and artists, you know, that I like. Um, sometimes illustrators, more often, and with all due respect to great illustrators like Mark and, and uh, you know, the guys that uh, from when I was... Younger like Bernie Fuchs and and uh, Daniel Schwartz and Alan Coburn all you know that era, I was developing my career by definitely looking a lot at those guys, but then I I got to a point where I started looking more at um, dead painters um, like Egon Sheila. and he'll probably go away sometime you know in the not too distant future and from my the back of my head but because I'm always changing but
0: well the the illustrators that you just mentioned were trend-setting monsters in the industry but their sensibilities and their function and their jobs were completely different than Delacroix that you mentioned and Renoir so you you are trying to match some of these influences to the historical setting and the the grit of some of these stories
1: yeah and I think the word influence is really important because I don't ever want unless it's part of the story I I don't ever want somebody to look at a book of mine or and and or the illustrations and and say well he's he's uh, copying uh, you know he's copying uh, Rembrandt on that one or Van Gogh on that he's trying to be like van Gogh
0: Gary you are not only a world traveler but I'd say you are a little tiny bit of a travel junkie uh, you and your wife have been known to jump up and go wherever you needed to or wanted to at a moment's notice, and you like other cultures, you like going places and experiencing things. That being said, you really have a loyalty to your native state of Iowa. You live in Cedar Falls, Iowa, and you've been there as long as I've known you, and before that, Tell me a little bit about that loyalty. And you've done a couple of projects that are Iowa-centric.
1: I grew up mostly in Iowa. My, I think I was conceived in Los Angeles. <laughs> I didn't ever ask or know. <laughs> Here <but> we go. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, when my parents lived out there um, uh, in the mid-1900s, um, sounds like an old that sounds terrible (laughs) uh but um anyway my dad didn't want to didn't want me to grow up out there so we came he came i don't remember
0: were they from iowa oh yeah okay yeah
1: yeah Yeah. there's just i could tell you a story about why i think they went to l to la during world war ii but uh they got married out there during world war ii actually but but anyway um yeah, I grew I grew up in Iowa. Um, spent a year living in in California again when my um, my mom talked my dad into going back out there when I was in junior high. Actually, ironically, some of my buddies that I developed at Washington Junior High School in Bellflower, California, um, were were designing our own graphic novel back. Then. Well, you didn't call them graphic novels back comic book back then, and. Uh, and that was fun, but um, but then we moved back after a year, and uh, I spent most of the rest of the, well, I have spent the rest of my uh, my life essentially anchored in Iowa. I have lived briefly in Connecticut teaching, you know, uh, uh, in the late '90s. Um, uh, lived uh, lived with our daughter in in Santa Monica, California, for two months at a time. Uh, about 10 years ago, two different, two different years. Uh, But, I, when we would go to live with her, in Santa Monica, uh, she, she's single. She, a one bedroom apartment, we lived there, and I worked there. I, I I took a drawing board with me, and I, I kept working. I, I, we were not on vacation. I was not on vacation. So, it was, it was fun. It was an interesting experience, and, and, uh, sort of like being on vacation but working every day and and I d- it didn't affect my pace at all uh, when the illustration academy was in San Francisco it was just a lot closer you know for me to go than it would have been from Iowa but uh uh but that was good uh, good experience we 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 enjoyed it but but yeah um I'm, I'm a native of Iowa um I'm I'm to a point in my life now where I I love to travel but I have no desire to move somewhere else uh, we, of course, we have friends that are retired and go to Florida for a couple months every spring or late uh, winter, late winter. And I always think they're great people, but I always think I just couldn't do that. I, I just couldn't go spend a couple months near the beach and and uh, lounge around or play I can, golf every day. I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. I can't. Uh, I'd have to have my studio with me, but, um, I'm at a point in my life where I'm glad I did it. You know, I'm, I'm glad it's been the way it has and, and it, it'll probably continue.
0: So what are, I know you've done actually a couple of related projects that are calendars, I think. Tell us about your involvement with the calendars and they mm-hmm. are very Iowa centric.
1: Well, I'm working on one right now. I'll talk about that briefly later here, but um, uh, that has to do with Iowa. But I don't do a lot of Iowa centric projects, ironically. but I don't know, three or four years ago, uh, the printer back back uh, where I live in, in Cedar Falls, Iowa, a, a printer I've done a lot of work with and very, very nice to work with. They came to me just with a promotional idea to do a, a calendar, you know, uh, just uh, to, permit, to promote the printing and they let me um, do what I wanted. So I thought, well, since it's, they're an Iowa printer, most of their clients are in Iowa, I'll do a calendar based on Iowa. And so I chose 12, maybe 13 subjects, the ones I wanted to do, and they all had some some relationship to Iowa. When I, when I have that kind of freedom, I want to, I do want to do a range of images that will pull people into a point where, if uh, one of the images was uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder, you know, Little House on the Prairie.
0: So these are historical references yeah, uh, well, to Iowa. Yeah,
1: yeah. I, I'm maybe as you you can tell by now, I'm I'm way more interested in history than I am in the future or right now, as far as images go. But I, I figured since she was involved with Little House on the Prairie, of course. Okay, that, that will be a popular image, uh, but I'm going to do it the way I want. And, and she spent time in Iowa um, uh, in north, Northern Iowa uh, on her well, you know, her, her, her family um, had a place there and, and, um, when she was growing up. So I did a large oil painting of her walking, reading a book next to a, a, a big cow. But it, that, and something like that, of course, would be all about composition. That's not like a picture for a graphic novel or anything. Um, That was fun. What
0: was the format of the calendar for your images?
1: Um, It was a horizontal eight and a half by eleven, and again, a page, a full page for each image. And since I was totally in charge of the graphics, uh, the images, I thought, well, (laughs) I'm going to do like like I said earlier, I'm going to do something you might not expect. (laughs) I don't know what to expect. You don't know what to expect. Nothing weird. But a variety of images, a variety of mediums, and a variety of subject matters. So, Laura Ingalls Wilder, another large oil painting of uh, which are shot professionally and then scanned in, down to the size, but the Laura Ingalls was, uh, Wilder was probably uh, three by four feet at least. Uh, a big portrait of um, Chief Blackhawk, a famous uh, Sac Indian. Um, our county where I live is named after him. He had some good experiences and bad experiences in Iowa with the U.S. military and settlers and all that. But he is an icon in Iowa. Everybody knows that name in Iowa. Uh, another large pan- painting of a an African American uh, all-American football player from the University of Iowa named Duke Slater, who became I think the first the first black judge uh, of a, at a certain. Level of importance in the in the United States or in the state of Iowa for sure, but he was an icon. He was an All American football player. So so you look at for me, I look at that compositionally, and um, he was a, a big, very athletic um, tackle, and so I'm filling the canvas with him. He's ne- he's in his stance on the line of scrimmage without a helmet. You know, I don't know if they wore helmets back then even, but uh, you can, so you can see his portrait. And then I would I would write just a little blurb next to the, next to the, uh, <clears throat> go down the side of the calendar so we'd know who he was. So how,
0: did, you said you were mixing and matching different techniques and media mm-hmm. with each piece. So mm-hmm. what technique did, did you use for him in particular and why did you choose it? That's
1: a good question. I did another large oil painting of him because I I wanted variety, first of all. I thought the, the graphic qualities of a large flat painting would be fun to work with because it's one single player with a black jersey and down in his stance. And then visually, you know, as a painter or an illustrator, also is very important to me the cropping of the image. So I cropped in tight on him so when you find an, the right old photo you don't have to fo- find all, all I needed was a photo of his face from a certain po- position and then look around for other po- you know old football photos uh, and then and then break that photo down into a graphic kind of shape thing so that's the way i would approach that. and i had, you know i I've, I've done a lot of large oil paintings anyway that you just don't see many of them so i did him that way um i did um uh, again, I got to pick all the subjects. Another interesting story about Iowans is the Battle of Shiloh and the Civil War. I did a monotype for that one, because when you do, and, and I love uh, I love doing my home, I love doing research and, and letting it influence my work. So I did a, a monotype of four, uh, I printed one first off, image of a Union soldier standing in a kind of a shabby Union soldier standing at attention with his rifle and then I did ghost images of three others or you know in a row two on one side one on the other side so it's a horizontal row of four soldiers one has a full color and the other three are faded Uh, because when I did my homework uh, I found out that one out of four Union soldiers um, uh, one out of every four Union soldiers killed at the Battle of Shiloh was was from Iowa uh, because there, that was one of our major units in the Civil War. Yeah. And
0: I'm going to back up a little bit and explain. You said you used ghost images, and this was a monotype, you said. Right. So when you run a monotype through the press the first time, you get the full image, when you don't re-ink it and just run it through again, you get what's called a ghost. Right. And in this interpretation, not only was it a ghost print, but you were interpreting these other three unfortunate. It's soldiers. the same.
1: Yeah, it's the same soldier pose right. four times. Right. Three of them are faded. One of them is full color.
0: Uh, and and only... that was just a, a technical aspect of making monotypes. Yeah. Without re-inking, the, so the printer
1: had... had to had to reprint. Two of the faded images, because if I'd have printed it three times, it would have been almost gone. The fourth gone. time, it wouldn't have been much left. Right. But I wanted to. I all I all I did in the little blurb I wrote down below it for the calendar, is just talk about what what I just said as far as one out of one out of four. And if you if you don't, you know, I suppose some people that wouldn't read everything just hang the calendar, would wonder what that picture is all about. But that's okay. I want I I want to. I want that kind of information, that kind of visual information, that kind of sim, not symbolism, but interpretation in, in a picture if, if I have the freedom to do it that way. So that that's a, that's a range of sort of what I did. One, I'm doing this other, uh, I have this assignment right now to do a calendar for Iowa women, uh, the history of Iowa women in the, in the women's movement, uh, which gave them the right to vote. 100 year, one hundred years ago next year, you know, 1920, 2020.
0: So you're talking about women's suffrage in 1920. Yep, absolutely. Okay, which was the year after the end of World War One. Right,
1: right. And one of the leaders of that movement was a woman named Carrie Chapman Catt, who lived in Iowa, about 40 miles from where I live. And so that was one of the calendar pieces for through the Iowa calendar and obviously she'll she'll have to be in the women's calendar as well in a different way uh, so i'll find a different way to you know to portrait her the um one one another thing that i'll carry over from the Iowa calendar to the women the Iowa women's movement calendar and and this is um this is i suppose it goes a little deep into the way i like to interpret pictures or the, or the way i Make clients let me do the pictures I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I like that either yeah. way. I was watching PBS and they did a they had a feature a few months ago on the history of the American circus.
0: I saw it. I loved it. Yeah. It's yeah. on Netflix now. Oh yeah, shameless well, I might plug have to watch for it Netflix. Again. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: Um, but anyway, I was just watching it because I watch PBS a lot, and uh, all of a sudden they started talking about the Ringling Brothers, and and by the way, the Ringling Brothers are from Iowa. Originally, and they're in my Iowa calendar, but I thought, okay, I didn't realize that they were the leaders. Um, they're men, of course, for the women's movement, but they were maybe the first important um, men, uh, or you know, uh, entertainers at least that women really gained from by by the way they treated them. The, the Ringling Brothers, and I didn't really know, I had, in my previous research on them, I've, I just found out about, out, out about what they did when they were kids and growing up in Iowa and all that. I didn't realize that the Ringling Brothers Circus was one of the first places in the country, maybe the first, that let, I, let women um, have as much importance or sometimes more than their male performers they were paid as much. Um, they, were, they were promoted on posters and like advertising as much as men or more. And no, but no women were treated that way in entertainment back then. And, uh, and so I thought, well, th- that's a little bit of a stretch for a women's movement.
0: And you're talking about 1880s, 1890s yeah, yeah. in the circus.
1: Yeah, and I, I, I just look forward to having a piece that means something to this theme and at the same time being able to maybe do my version of an old circus poster or something. That, I'm always looking for those kind of connections that that number one will help move my story forward, but number two are equally will give me a chance to do a picture I want to do. And and so that's what, and actually the, the committee that's do, I'm doing this calendar for, um, the women's calendar, some of them push back against that. Well, why do, we don't, Really want the Ringling Brothers in this calendar? They're men, and then fortunately I had some women on my side, and and we said no. But they were the men that that promoted women, and they were Iowans. And those, it's a little bit of a of a, a reach to the connection for the calendar, but that's okay because it's going to be a fun picture to do, and it's gonna it's going to put information out there that a lot of people never knew existed. I mean I didn't know that until, you know, 6 months ago. So that, you know, that'll be fun to do. It'll it'll I well one thing I felt well another one is is um El- Elizabeth Catlett who was one of the most renowned African American female painters and printmakers in the mid 1900s. She was she was I I'd seen her work all over uh, in my research anyway, but then I realized that she went to the University of Iowa. She wasn't from Iowa, but she attended. She had, she got her art degree at the University of Iowa in Iowa City, and she studied with Grant Wood. Uh, her work doesn't look like his, but I thought since she has such a high name recognition in especially African-American artists and women artists in general in, in, in that history, I want her in this calendar, even though she wasn't born here. But I, I figure in the calendar... Everybody in Iowa, of course, knows who Grant Wood was. And, um, and the fact that he was her professor and he was very important to her, and she graduated from the University of Iowa with her degree in art and then became the first really well-known African-American female artist. See, that? I'm, I'm kind of wandering off here, but that's the way I like it to go. I don't want to just line up a 12 portraits of women who were in politics. There was a there was a woman in Iowa, a black woman in in Des Moines, that actually was the first uh, the at a drugstore. That that she hot summer day she went in and sat on a stool at the counter and ordered a milkshake and said, "Well, we can't give you one of those. You know, we don't serve um, Negroes." And that was probably in the it was it was maybe five ten years before Rosa Parks, but it was the same situation. Mm-hmm. And she went. She she got a bunch of her friends and came back the next day and said, "We're gonna we're gonna sit. We're gonna we're gonna get a milkshake or sit here all day." And, and finally, they did. They gave it to her. And and those kinds of things. I love to do my research and find that stuff. Cause I don't want to do a calendar that just, all right, this person, this person, this person. Yeah, we know we know about that. That's cool. I I want to I want to educate people a little bit too. And I want to do it with the way I do the pictures. When I when I do that. Ringling Brothers piece um, I'll I'll probably go back and do another you know turn of the century circus poster kind of style when I do uh, I don't know what I'll do for uh, you know the um, the soda fountain thing in Des Moines but I'm sure I'll find a fun way it <laughs> wasn't a fun situation I'm sure but an interesting way for me to solve that problem and it won't look like the Ringling Brothers at all and that's again that goes back to I started this conversation with people not knowing what to expect from me. <laughs> Neither one of those pieces would probably look like anything that the Atlantic Monthly would have uh, recognized, but uh, that, that's why I'm still excited about what I'm doing.
0: When you're describing the way that you're trying to come up with these ideas and you're not drawing straight lines from here to there with these Iowan people, whether they're male or female or African American or Native Americans or whatever, You're trying to interpret history correctly and historically, but to give us your interpretation on how these things came about and maybe a little bit of the backstory. Maybe somebody will look at this calendar and actually dig into one of these people. You may stimulate people Mm -hmm. to look into it even more and for their self edification. And so you're trying to stimulate people, for some movement, or some thought, or at least to look at the picture for more than one second.
1: Right, right, that's, well, and selfishly speaking, that's really what excites me, is is finding stuff to show, to interpret visually that isn't a cliche, Or, or taking a cliche and making it not look like a cliche, that's really important. So those are the kinds of people I'm looking for in that calendar that everybody didn't know came from Iowa. The, my, main, not my main concern, but one of my concerns is that I hope everybody understands that I, I'm not all about myself. I don't have that much of an ego, I don't think, I hope. Uh, but um, but uh, I, I did think, well, okay, I'm doing this women's movement calendar, and I'm a guy. I'm a, I'm a male. I'm from an Iowan, but I'm, I'm a male. Uh, but I want to do it. <laughs> I definitely want to do it. So they didn't, they didn't, ref- They that was fine with them, totally fine. They didn't, it was, they asked me to do it. Um, they came to me. So, but then I thought, okay, these little stories we have to write on each page, I, I wrote those for the Iowa history, or just the Iowa printer's calendar. But in this case, since, um, um my my daughter um, has been a television writer and uh, she's well, she won an Emmy uh, last year actually and is now looking for work in Chicago but um, but I found her some work by uh, by having her write write the uh, bios for this calendar. so so she, there is a female Iowan involved in the creative side of this calendar. Uh, you know, we grew up in the same house but, um, I, I I thought that was important. I, I feel a lot more comfortable now because I, I really wouldn't want somebody to come back and say, why would you hire this guy to do the calendar and make the notes for it and stuff? Why didn't you find a woman to do it? I mean, I, I do think about that, and I am a little nervous about that part of it, but I want to do it. I want to do it, and, and I'm very confident that I'll do it right.
0: Well, I know you're sensitive to those things, and you've just proven how you helped solve not a problem, but you helped solve a situation that could be potentially blaming or damning against you or the people that, that uh, you know, started the calendar. The way I look at it is I've read several books just out of curiosity on Zen Buddhism. Three basically that I remember. Uh, one was written by a Zen Buddhist, the other was written by a Hindu, and the other was written by a Christian and it was interesting they all kind of got to the same place but they started somewhere else so if you're a male doing a calendar about females that can be just as valid it may be a little bit different but we're always talking about interpretation so maybe the next calendar they do they will say no this has to be done by whomever or whatever but I, i think it was interesting that they they came to you in the first place and said yeah he's a guy but let's look at the track record of, mm-hmm. of the way he approaches and treats yeah. these subjects.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm probably um, the biggest thrill for me is the fact that they're going to let me um, pretty much depict these women the way I want to visually, and then that I can get my Iowa daughter involved in the project as well. I mean, the, that, all, that all seemed to kind of come together. I'm very happy about that.
0: Gary, thank you for talking with me today and being here. And you and I usually don't ever run out of things to say, and we have not today. Thank you very much for your insights and your, your great stories.
1: Yeah, thank you. I, it, I, uh, I appreciate it, uh, Brent. And without your questions and your conversation, I'd have a hard time sitting here talking this long. <laughs> thank you.